it's time for Wired Ivy Office Hours, a quick but deep dive into an online higher ed term or concept to cultivate effective communication and weed out confusion. My co-host, Dan Marcucci, and I have been working on a multi-episode series about navigating the U.S. market for contract and full-time positions in the virtual classroom. That's a little teaser of what's to come later this season. As we research this topic, though, we keep coming across a term that seems perfect for a first office hours explainer, NC Sarah approved institutions. Now, in case you're wondering, NC Sarah isn't the academic equivalent of Angie's List, the brainchild of some random entrepreneur based in North Carolina. No, it's an acronym, a shorthand way to reference the National Council for State Authorization Reciprocity Agreements. So that clears up what NC Sarah stands for, sort of. Solving the riddle of why NC Sarah exists in the first place and what role it plays in online education will take a little bit longer. But never fear, I'll have you up to speed and back on the information superhighway in no time at all. You see, prior to 2014, an academic institution in, say, Georgia couldn't legally let students living in, oh, I don't know, Oregon have access to its online courses unless Oregon and Georgia had a signed reciprocity agreement. The same limitation applied to students in any other state who wanted to take online courses from that Georgia institution, unless Georgia had a reciprocity agreement with each of those students' home state or U.S. territory. At this point, any American who took a U.S. government class in high school or as an undergrad will surely be wondering, how can this be so? Doesn't the Interstate Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution give federal legislators the power to regulate commerce between the states, not state entities? And isn't this interpretation part of settled case law? It's true. The Commerce Clause has been used to ban discrimination based on race, gender, religion. And yet, to this day, universities discriminate against non-resident students by charging a higher out-of-state tuition and, at some institutions, preferencing in-state students in acceptance decisions. Various legal scholars have opined that Congress probably does have the right to disallow this practice, but just hasn't done so. Possibly this is because it would be politically unpopular to, in effect, require the taxpayers who support their state's public universities to subsidize the education of students who reside and pay taxes in some other state. Anyway, for a long time, this reciprocity requirement wasn't much of a thorn in the side of traditional universities because, one, online course and program offerings weren't all that common, two, when offered, they weren't a source of profit, and three, because online programs weren't considered central to the institution's missions. As such, not much time was spent developing and marketing online offerings or negotiating reciprocity agreements with other states. That began to change in the 1990s, when for-profits like University of Phoenix started to grow the market for distance degrees. They recognized that online delivery was a logical next step in their drive to expand the audience for higher education by improving accessibility. Moreover, distance education audiences offered a means for increasing enrollment without commensurate increases in facilities costs, which meant serving online students increased profit margins. For-profits were successful enough using this strategy that nonprofits started to take notice and, frankly, get a little nervous. However, these same public institutions didn't want to cannibalize their in-state market for campus-based students, yet they couldn't compete for students in other states without going through a costly and lengthy case-by-case approval process for their classes and degree programs and negotiating separate reciprocity agreements with all the other states. So starting in 2009, higher education institutions, partnering with the Lumina Foundation, 
the Council of State Governments, state regulators, education leaders, accreditors, and the U.S. Department of Education set out to map a path toward simplifying the reciprocity process. A few years later, the four regional higher education compacts joined and helped with the organizing efforts. In December of 2013, NCSERA was formally established with funding support from Lumina. State memberships were offered the following year, and in 2019, the SARA Policy Manual became the official policy document. Today, NCSERA is a private 501c3 nonprofit organization with more than 2,200 institutions in 49 member states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. According to their website, NCSERA, quote, helps expand student access to educational opportunities and ensure more efficient, consistent, and effective regulation of distance education programs. And thanks to NCSERA, it's now so common for online higher education programs to accept students from other states that you probably spend way more time thinking about how you need to design your courses to serve students in multiple time zones than you've ever given to considering whether any legal barriers had to be cleared so you could welcome those students into your virtual classroom. That's it for this episode of Wired IV Office Hours. We'll include links to the reference materials used to create this explainer on the show notes page at wiredivy.org. Let's hear what you have to say. Send us your questions, comments, and suggestions. You can leave a voice message at speakpipe.com slash wiredivy or send us an email to kieran at wiredivy.org. Kieran is spelled K-I-E-R-A-N or dan at wiredivy.org. Dan is spelled D-A-N. And help Wired Ivy grow by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on your favorite podcast app.